Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jarrett Fuller, and this is a podcast about trying to figure out what design is. I am joined today by Dennis Weil. Dennis is currently the dean of IIT Institute of Design in Chicago, the school that was originally founded by Laszlo Moholy-Nagy as the new Bauhaus in 1937, and today is one of the most expansive graduate design programs in the country. Dennis has a really fascinating journey into design and into academia. He originally studied chemical engineering and has worked across a wide range of sectors in the design industry, from product design to service design, marketing to research. He worked as a vice president of design and innovation for McDonald's and served as the government innovation fellow for Bloomberg Philanthropies in 2016. This varied background clearly informs his thinking as dean at IIT and and the role of design today more generally. We begin this conversation talking about the changing definitions of design and where he sees design heading into the future, including a fascinating new program that they just started at IIT that blends design and public policy. We also talk about the limits of design thinking and what it means to be a designer in a world where everyone designs. And we also talk about his theory that design is best at framing complexity, inspiring possibilities, and organizing for change. There's a lot in here that I know I will be thinking about for a while. I hope that you enjoy it too. Remember that through 2021, we'll be releasing new episodes every single week. So if you enjoy this show and want to help support it, you can become a member for just $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter written by me, as well as previews of the upcoming episodes. This show in so many ways is made possible because of this support. So if you want to help it and want to see it continue, you can visit scratchingthesurface.fm slash members for all the details. That's scratchingthesurface.fm slash members. Thank you again for listening and enjoy this conversation with Dennis Weil. I... I... I want to start uh, with a question that's probably like a really big question that is probably honestly not um, not the best question to start with. But I think let's start really big and then we can kind of zero in on things. Um, and so I want to start, you are the the dean at IIT's Institute of Design. And this is one of the, you know, th- this school obviously has a, a long history founded by Laszlo moholy kind of the new Bauhaus Um you know, has this kind of long history in the United States, one of the only... Um, one of the only or the only graduate programs specifically for design. And what's interesting to me is that all of your programs are uh, are just called design. You know, you can you can get an MDES, uh, you can get a, like an MDES and an MBA, but there's there's no um, uh, you know kind of specificity in front of that word design. They're all just design degrees. And I'm curious. Uh, I love that. And I'm curious kind of how you define design today. What does design mean in this context? First of all, I think the reason why we do that is at the core, the, being a graduate-only school has both its benefits and its curses. Uh, the curses is that we are definition small. <laughs> uh, most design schools have are 80% undergraduate. Uh, the benefit is that it really allows us to focus not on the how of design, but on the what uh, and the why. 
Um, and I think that's, uh, so we have, while we have a small faculty of 13 faculty members, we probably have the biggest faculty focused more on the design on impact and uh, domains and less on the technical skills. So, so that's uh, why we have that. We, um, uh, so the definition of design at the what and why level that I think is uh, really happening is, is I use a very simple uh, history of design and, and, and I look at design as a professional practice and therefore I look at analogies in other professional practices. Design is a very young professional practice. And um, I look at specifically at two analogies that I find very helpful. One is finance. Uh, finance is also a relatively young discipline, actually, uh, the level of finance. It started, obviously, as bookkeeping, which started in ancient Egypt, so very old, double ledger. It's very old. Right, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but then accounting actually only started in the 1880s uh, when it was formed. The first institute of accounting was formed in, the, uh, in Scotland. It came out of lawyers. Uh, mm. And that was kind of the, to me, that shift from bookkeeping accounting is the shift that design has, from design, traditional design to design thinking. Design thinking to me is accounting, which basically says it now has a professionalization of it. It has broader access, everybody can use it. And then finance started only in the 1980s with computers because accounting was always backward looking. It took two weeks to actually being able, so it was never strategic. The right. function. When computers came along and you suddenly had access instantly to results, that's when it became strategic. And I feel we are in design are now at that shift. And we're obviously doing it much faster uh, than finance because we're living in a much faster world. And I think we are making that shift to finance to a much more strategic role. And I think that design and what I'm looking for in that transition is obviously it's an increase. You always increase your footprint. Bookkeeping still exists. Mm-hmm. or making still exist and still where the majority of designers work, uh, but it's moving up in, in the value chain. That's how you move up to kind of leadership positions and C-level positions and not from a personal point of view, but from a discipline point of view. Yeah. Right. I, I think there's three, and, and, and you do that by owning something in an organization that you can, only you, only your discipline uh, can contribute uh, that specific value or lead in that specific area for the organization, be that for-profit or non-profit. And I think the three areas that I think design in today's world is needed and where design can uniquely contribute and is needed to contribute is in framing complexity. We live in a complex world. Uh, I particularly found that when I worked, uh, the three years I worked in the social sector and the government sector, and we, we complexity uh, in the world today, people take a top-down approach and then people get lost. And right. can bring a little bit add to to that top-down approach, a bottom-up approach, and through mapping and making it tangible and making it understanding on uh, how it impacts people, uh, how it impacts uh, systems. And I think that's a unique thing where design can really help people to grasp it and be able to not get overwhelmed by the complexity, but find points of entry. Because a bottom-up approach looks for points of entry. Um, the second thing is really uh, cultivating inspiring possibilities uh, that mm. designer as facilitator obviously designer to making things tangible making prototypes and uh, helping uh, groups and uh, facilitate and the third one which is probably the newest one 
Uh, I think is that we are now also need to get very much involved. And this one is the one that I think requires a cultural change within design, and we can talk more about that, is organizing for, 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 for impactful change. Mm -hmm. Design can no longer sit back and do a reveal and saying, voila, aren't we great? <laughs> yeah. over to you. And now you figure out how to implement it. If we stay that way, we'll, we'll never have impact because it will fail. So so those are kind of where, where we are at what I think design is today at the at the what and more and more importantly at the why level. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's interesting to me for a couple reasons. And there are a couple things in there that I would love to pull out and, and talk about more specifically, but I'm something that I think about a lot, and I'm hearing this in your answer also, is just this, I, I agree with you about um, kind of design's relationship to complexity and kind of dealing with the complexities of the world. But what I find uh, interesting is how design itself has also gotten more complex. And I think you can even see that in the history at IIT, that it started, you know, much more uh, from a kind of industrial design standpoint, you know, thinking about products into things like design thinking, human-centered design, now to kind of what you're talking about now is the kind of next phase. And we can kind of see that in design at large. And I, I, I'm not sure exactly how to phrase my question, but how, how do you think about this kind of expanding definition of design? How does that actually change does that actually change kind of how we operate as designers? And does that change kind of how you think about what has to happen in a design program? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I think what stays the same uh, is is kind of the purpose. So what, what, because what can design deliver and what is its task and its purpose? And, and when I became dean three years ago, it was right when we celebrated our 80th anniversary. And when I came in, the team was already had done all this focus on how we can celebrate uh, that important milestone. And obviously coming in, I was like, I am not so sure that I want to ground ourselves. You know, was much more, let's focus on the future. But then I read Moholy's vision in motion and I was struck by uh, how relevant the, the purpose and the impact that he wanted to have is to today and some of his approaches. And, and you know, that approach, by the way, I took from my work at McDonald's. Whenever I started work at McDonald's, the easier way of getting something implemented in a large organization, a network organization, which faculty are and which McDonald's is, is to actually uh, uh, tap into the DNA. So the DNA of the IIT is can best, can best uh, summarized by Moholy's quote that the design or the new Bauhaus accepts the challenge of technical progress with its recognition of social responsibility. Mm. The complexity that we are talking about is that this could be done in the 30s with this idea of bringing science, art, technology, and commerce together, but it was still mostly point solution products that, that really to do this very same thing, we need to shift much more to interventions instead of products because we need to be adaptive solutions that can change and evolve. And we need to obviously understand many, many more things because of the interconnectedness. So, so that to me uh, is driving the shift. What that means from an education point of view, and you might have heard that already, I think we have shifted from ideals model, and that's what I tell our students, we have shifted from ideals model of T-shape to a green mm -hmm. letter pie shape. So our designers, you need to obviously be an expert in design. That's one of the legs of the letter pie. The other one, it needs to be, quoting John Maida, could be another discipline like technology or business, as he, his framework claims, or uh, I believe more and more, 
uh, also could be a domain area. For example, designing healthcare right. or designing government requires an mm -hmm. understanding of the domain. And that goes back to my earlier point about that design is maturing as a profession. And therefore, most like if you go to law, another professional practice, uh, you study both an area of law, like contract law or family law, but then you also study a certain sector or domain. So, energy, law in the energy sector. Mm -hmm. I think those are models that can help us um, to figure out uh, kind of how we need to evolve. You know, I think talking about this evolution is interesting now because. Um, you know, I think we're now starting to kind of see the limits of, uh, quote unquote, design thinking uh, that was seen as this, uh, you know, you could just kind of take the design process and just kind of throw it at anything else uh, and it would just kind of do the same thing. And I've heard you talk about moving beyond this idea of design thinking, which I think um, for better or for worse has kind of devolved into um you know, a kind of stereotype, a kind of creativity add-on to something else. And what I'm hearing you say is this evolution is not that necessarily that design is something separate that you add on, but that is actually embedded from the beginning and in dialogue with all of these other disciplines. Is that is that kind of how you're thinking Absolutely. about it? I mean, everybody designs, but not everybody's a designer. Um, so, and... Uh, I think uh, actually on, the, on that, that different, we, we just completed, we did a, a study that Jay Dublin did in 1959 on the 100, at that time it was the 100 best design products. And mm, we did it with right. Fortune Magazine and Fortune Magazine approached us and saying we would like to run it again 60 years later. And we followed the similar approach that he had taken. So it was all peer driven. So we had to ask mm -hmm. 100 people to nominate products. And he had designers, that's time he said architects and design educators. And we, uh, we got, didn't include architects this time. We replaced them with design influencers. And the key shifts we saw, obviously the product categories, and we called it the greatest designs, not the great, because we obviously have baby on product. Uh, but the biggest, uh, the shift, the products are very different. The shifts we saw is that really design has moved from a noun to a word. And that goes back to this designing versus designer. And, and I think the verb is, pract is practiced for everybody in the world recognizing it needs more and more. The other key shifts that I think are relevant and should make feel as good about the increasing influence of design is that there was a clear uh, indication of the comparison of those 100 greatest design that it moved from value adding to value driving. So design now drives value, um, can still add value, but in many cases, being a verb, it's about driving value. The other one is um, that uh, truly uh, moves uh, from just point solution to more system solutions, it moves mm -hmm. from, from more of kind of a commercial uh, um, obsolete, uh, obsoleteness to, uh, to impact. And, and, and lastly, from, from exclusive to democratized. So an IKEA bookshelf was, was selected, whatever, and packaged goods products were selected as 100 greatest design. So I think these are all incredibly positive trends if you think about the impact of design and, and, and for the future of design. I think this idea of, you know, kind of everyone being a designer now and this democratization of design uh, is, is exactly right and is really interesting because it then changes kind of you know what 
those of us who are professional designers or think of ourselves as professional designers, how we then treat our work. And this might connect to this new kind of interesting program that I think um, is really interesting that, that you just started, which is uh, a partnership with the Stewart School of Business, which is a combination Master of Design and Master of Public Administration and MDES plus MPA about design and policy. Can you talk a little bit about kind of where that came about and how that fits into this idea that you're talking about? Yeah, so uh, it was driven by two things. One is we have seen a, a major shift in our students who are applying to our program. Uh, one, and you know, we accept about 40% of our students that accept do not have a design background. Uh, 60% hmm. too. Uh, but uh, we, and we saw two things. One, we saw that even people we don't have a design background design nowadays, going back to whatever design. Right. So they actually submit a portfolio. You don't have to submit a portfolio, but they do. And mm-hmm. everybody has designed it out. <laughs> yeah. Just saying yeah. everybody has designed it out. I've looked, I'm very good at looking at the application materials. Uh, but that means that they have thought through on kind of how to find an interface uh, to, so and how to do a visual design. Uh, so we, as a result, actually, we, we reduced our foundation program from which students have to do if they don't have a design background from one year to a semester. But the second thing we saw is that the motivation in the letter of intent, uh, the reason they want to um, get into design school, 30% of them are driven by social impact. And uh, mm. and w- uh, so that's kind of the student change motivation. The second motivation is that was my own path, actually. So I, I left uh, my corporate career uh, six years ago and, uh, and wanted to go more into the social innovation space and public innovation space. And, and what I saw in that, and I spent a year uh, at Harvard as a fellow studying what was blocking design in the social and public space. And what I uh, found out very early is that what is interesting and where there is a connection is that if you look at the public servant or a social scientist, a job description and the job description of a designer, we actually have the same job description. Understanding yeah. the system and finding ways to improve the system. The difference is that we mm-hmm. go about it in completely opposite ways. Uh, a social mm-hmm. scientist looks at the most recent randomized control trials, evidence-based that were done in that field, combines two of them on the dining table and uh, now with the work from home, and comes up new intervention model and then goes and tries that out and does a randomized control trial. Uh, a designer does yeah. much more of a beneficiary-centric approach and, and does a more of a bottom-up approach. So I, I took away that there's a really an incredible synergy because there is a, a goal alignment, uh, but A, a different approach. So that's a good thing. There's also, however, a huge cultural gap and difference between the two, which we need to bridge. And that's where I think um, I, I teach civic design class and I start the class and end the course with the same question on is civic design a new design discipline or is civic design just a dom- domain where service design or design is being practiced? And, and we, I don't have the answer mm. to that because it's somewhere probably in between. But so that's how we concluded that there is a need for it, there's a benefit for it, and it's different enough that students going back to this pie-shaped idea, that in order to create somebody who can really be strong in design for policy and design for government, uh, that having both uh, foundations of design and public policy and public administration. Yeah, I, I mean, it's so fascinating to me, and I, I'm really 
really interested in kind of the ideas of of that program specifically because it, it it actually really connects to a lot of what we're talking about now because I think it's doing two there's two things that I'm kind of reading into this that I would love to hear you talk about more. One is that I think it, it kind of acknowledges the limits of the designer kind of the designer proper that design alone can't solve all of these problems it has to be in dialogue with something else and so the fact that this is the intersection of design and policy is showing how these two things together are starting to get to to something and so i think that acknowledging that limit feels strangely kind of radical to me that i'm i would love to hear you talk about but then also the fact that the design process isn't just limited to the designer anymore, that it is that, that the public servant is also a designer. And so it's like design as its own discipline is not enough. And so we open it up to everybody. And then that then it becomes in dialogue with the larger world, with the larger systems. And then that's where real change happens. Can you talk about kind of how you think about, you know, how design moves through those spaces and, and kind of opens itself up? Uh, yes, uh, the, I think the um, first of all, I, I, I wonder sometimes on why design even starts from the point that design was enough. That doesn't very few other disciplines ever believe that or practice. So, so I think it goes back to our craft days, to be honest. And there's nothing wrong with that. But but I think, and, and it goes back to the studio. I mean, design traditionally was done by going inside of you um, and, and and going into the studio, which is a withdrawal to a certain extent, and then mm. come up with something and then bring it back to society. So you started in society, did kind of a needs assessment, whoever measured their foot for a shoe to make her, and then went in the studio and designed it come back. Uh, I, I think that's, what, and that's the cultural change that I alluded to before. That's a key shift, I think, that we need to make as we want, as we need to move and want to move to higher impact and value, which is that we need to move from this, give up on this idea of authorship, uh, mm -hmm. not completely mm -hmm. give up for it, but being open to, so there are moments of authorship for sure, and it's absolutely important, and there's design, like makers that we never want to lose, uh, but if you want to have design at the integrated way, uh, I think we need to become more integrators and facilitators, and I think again that design is uniquely qualified for that, uh, because uh, to wait, it's very hard to integrate. I'm sure we have all been in cross-functional teams with all things are nowadays. And it's hard, we're not speaking the same language because words don't often allow to create alignment. So what design can do through prototyping and making things tangible is kind of two things. One is saying, is this what we are talking about? Uh, so in the group and go saying, is that actually, does this look like or how does it look differently? So we can be all talking about the same thing. Uh, and the second thing, which um, is particularly obviously important, as we see right now again with the elections as well, is with the uh, helping with avoiding unintended consequences, or as uh, Silicon Valley calls it, the gap between the intent and the effect. And, and I think that uh, we did a, a research, study, syndicated research study on kind of the new roles of designers, which I can talk more about, which we talk about lead with purpose. And we think that one of the key roles that design in teams, delivery teams can play is to ensure and be the steward of making sure that the team actually delivers on the, what they are developing, that that gap between what's being actually designed and delivered and what the original impact intent was is, is, is not too big. So, so I think um, uh, 
I think that uh, so that's really key for design. Uh, just to answer on the government side, uh, I did work a year with Bloomberg uh, Philanthropies, uh, a fellow, right. and my what I focused on was uh, so they already had about 15 uh, innovation teams in cities that they um, uh, funded on a three-year basis in the office of the mayor. And it was at the point where three year, after three years they've started, they wanted to get an understanding on the range they were seeing, on why were some teams having incredible impact and some teams didn't have impact. So, so I traveled around the states and did some workshops with them and assessment to understand practices and what, what were different and and what became very clear and the models were all the same by the way so the models just to talk again about cross-functionality bloomberg was really leading in that they funded uh, three positions so the team needed to have three positions it needed to have a project manager who mostly came from management consulting and that was the lead of the team it needed to have a data scientist because the bloomberg was obviously extremely and third it needed to have a designer that combination already is fascinating, and it was fascinating to see how the teams that we did well were really able not to work in silos, but actually work together, and particularly that connection between data scientist and designer. Um, the second thing that really came out is that um, the teams that uh, did best, and I would have to call out, and if you're interested, they're still going strong. You see a team in LA at the mayor's office in Los Angeles. They they were very clear in that their role wasn't authorship, their role, uh, and wasn't also no consultant because they hate consultants. In the city. Come in to <laughs> yeah. people. Uh, it was really to help public servants to reconnect with their purpose. Because you go into a public servant, which we all have this image of bureaucracy, they went originally into that role, lower paid job, uh, versus going into the private sector, because of a public service passion. But they never got right. to talk to actually residents so with through the design approach they were able to reconnect and that was really the magic is that they felt i reconnect i reconnected with my purpose and design helped me by going on walk-alongs observations and things like that and being human-centered um and and uh, and the second thing is that they really moved away from the office and made it they were their work they really felt more as a facilitator so so i think that's that's the uh the role and how design can have a transformative impact, I think, in, in the public space. You know, it's interesting to think about designer designers not less as authors and more as facilitators, thinking about kind of the intersection of design and data or design and policy or even just design and administration and the way these activities talk to each other. And now that I think about it, that's also kind of exactly what you're doing as Dean uh, is kind of operating at these intersections. How do you think about these questions in your job now as as Dean, where you are facilitating, you are uh, kind of an administrator, you are thinking about policy? How does how does design kind of actually play into your role now? So I think my role is the role of a Hollywood producer, um, which is a creative profession, but it's kind of creative and administrative at the same time. Uh, and I think that to a certain extent, when I made my pitch on why I think I could be Dean, even though I've never worked in academia before, uh, it was that my job at McDonald's was very similar because it was a decentralized network of 119 countries. And the role, and I was head of, global head of design 
uh, and innovation at the center. Uh, so it was again the idea of making every country and every designer, or architect, or innovation person in that market uh, shine. Uh, so that's the Hollywood producer. You understand what they need, you are matching them with the right resources, you're giving them the right opportunities. And I think that's very much the same with faculty. I mean, the, uh, a graduate school or a university 100% thrives based on the individual, mostly initially individually driven uh, contribution of faculty members, which are really entrepreneurs and, and rewarded. The model has always been entrepreneurial because they have a faculty has a base salary for teaching uh, that is uh, nine months, four days. And then the rest of the time, they're encouraged to find their, either their own research grants or uh, consulting to, to kind of increase. And so the role of the, right. the Dean is really much more of the Hollywood producer. It's a, it's, um, it's a difficult role in the sense that it doesn't line up at all with traditional uh, management roles. Uh, and mm. to a certain extent, it is, kind of also uh, the right approach of leadership for the complex world we live in, not just in academia or in Hollywood, but I think uh, even in, in communities and in, in large organizations. Uh, and that's this, this idea that leadership is something you, you get granted by, so it's not anymore hierarchical, it doesn't work anymore. It's really more movement building uh, and organizing. So, so we, we added two things to ID's uh, curriculum. One is we added adaptive leadership. This is a, a concept uh, developed by Ron Heifetz at the Kennedy School at Harvard. And it's really about peace negotiations, but it's this idea of that we, we for change, driving change and getting people to willing up to give up some things for the collective, which we could definitely use in this country. Uh, <laughs> uh, so they, you have to help them to be willing to take a loss in value, power, role, whatever it is, uh, in order for, uh, for the collective. And, and in order to do that, you need an approach that is much more cooperative and collective based and, and less right. technical. And we approach all traditional change management looks at everything as a technical challenge. And, and the key thing in adaptive leadership is to identify what is actually the adaptive challenge here. What are the, where are the barriers? Because they're mostly either emotional, social, and this goes back into kind of the policy design again and goes into systems thinking and uh, to to understand that. So so I think that um, that that leadership approach, and I'm not a master at it at all. I'm actually good for me to talk about it because it's it's uh, kind of getting there. And I think that's that's what a Hollywood uh, producer does as well. So, so no, we normally don't talk about Hollywood in design, but uh, it, it's a helpful model for me. It, that does actually make a lot of sense as a as a metaphor there. Do you think, um, I hope this isn't a reductive question, but do you still consider your work uh, as dean as design? Like, do you still consider yourself a designer? And is, is the job of being dean a design job? I've never been asked the question. So. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I think one of the areas, so we have added um, a lot of, Emerging design disciplines. So we have added the faculty member behavioral design, one in general mm -hmm. design, design and data, which has added one on uh, sustainability uh, with the, with mm -hmm. the business school. Uh, and the and policy, uh, what we haven't done yet is uh, organizational design. And I think that 
mm. is actually, if we really are, uh, so becoming what I like calling steward of purpose in an organization, is at the highest level design uh, should take on, which again goes back to my belief that in order to be able to be involved in the big decisions, you need to own something in an organization. As the finance mm -hmm. is the steward of the financial health, and I think that design should be the steward of the purpose health, uh, health delivering mm -hmm. on the purpose and that you delivering on your intent. Um, and in that sense, I think, yes, I am a designer. I'm an organizational designer that matures on how to deliver on purpose. Yeah, that's interesting. I actually, I also really like the idea that I, I think what you're saying about owning something is really interesting. And, and as you were saying that, I was like, well, design kind of sits between all of them. And, and I think really focusing on purpose is, uh, is a fascinating way to kind of, kind of think about that. And I'd like to connect that to, I'd like to just kind of go a little bit back, um, through your career a bit, just to kind of trace this, because I'm curious about your, you, you started talking about it earlier, kind of starting in the corporate world, you were at McDonald's for a while, uh, running design there. Uh, you worked in marketing and, and branding, and then you went into the public sector a little bit and started thinking about kind of social design. And now you're in academia and I'm interested in those transitions. Uh, can, can you talk a little bit about kind of moving from the corporate world into more public sector kind of social design into academia, what your how that kind of tracks to your interests and what you were wanting to do with design? So let me start at the beginning. I'm actually originally a chemical engineer. And I had no idea what I was going to do with it. So when, and in Switzerland, I'm from Switzerland. When I graduated, there's no on-campus recruiting. It doesn't exist still today. You just go and figure out, call, call on doors and figure out what so I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And my cousin uh, studied business, and he always talked about Procter & Gamble. I didn't know what Procter & Gamble was. And I saw this newspaper ad, and Procter & Gamble was looking for a product development engineer, and they're looking engineer. So I applied for that, and I got the job, and I developed uh, worked in, in uh, international markets on uh, diapers, pampers, and uh, development. Mm. And from day one, I just loved it. And what I loved was two things. I love the fact that I was visiting homes in Greece and Sweden and looking at the different, believe me, mothers and babies in Greece and Sweden have completely opposite needs uh, from Sweden. Uh, mm. Nordic countries look at diapers as a purely utilitarian thing of preventing leakage. Uh, and then moreover, and mothers in yeah. Greece looked at diapers as being absolutely the best for the skin. So, so I just love the fact that, um, it was consumer-based, and I love the fact that it was at such a large scale that I impacted millions of people um, a day. And and those, that, that was my guiding light uh, throughout uh, my career and, and, and all my changes. I, I think what shifted as I got older, uh, which I think happens to everybody, uh, so I, I would define this as impact. So, so impact is life and mm. impact in a large scale. What shifted is that I, I also started to define impact not just on scale, but also on the value of the impact. And is it really driving uh, to address the issues of our future and make a better society? And that's pretty trite, and it's what everybody goes through as they get older. But that's really yeah. what um, was one of the drivers that made me to shift from 
the for-profit sector into the non-profit sector. The other shift was, and that's, that's designed through my teaching, I started teaching um, service design in 2005 as an adjunct faculty member at the Institute of Design. I brought this uh, together with Mark Jones, who was on IDEO. We convinced the previous mm -hmm. dean, Patrick Whitney, to, to start teaching service design. Because when I started at McDonald's in 2001, straight out of ID, I had never heard of service design, but I realized what I was doing was actually designing services. And then I was together right. with Bergen Margaret and, 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 and Shirley Evanson uh, to figure out actually this is, seems again, still question today is it a discipline or it's an application, but going to that, uh, what service design is and started teaching it. And then through service design, I discovered the field of design for social innovation and public innovation about 2010 and started to take a, I took a sabbatical to learn more about it from McDonald's and then start teaching that. And so my other passion that drove my path is that I'm addicted to complexity. I just mm -hmm. challenge of complexity and I love being on the frontier of a discipline. So, so, so it's impact, complexity and frontier. And, um, the thing that I'm doing here at ID and what I'm trying to lead at Institute of Design is that I think in our history, we have always been, and that's what I love about it, at the, about complexity, we introduced the first distance thinking and design in 1960s with Charles Owen. Uh, we have always been at the frontier, the school reinvented itself every 20 years. We have never, however, really had large impact. The Moholy struggles, uh, we have never, really, and and I am not accepting that anymore. So that was the my call to the faculty, saying, this is not. We don't, we don't have to be niche. We can still do all the things we do, being frontier and focused on the why and the bigger issues, but try to have a much larger impact, and particularly also uh, being slightly less elitist, because the, one of the shortcomings of being a graduate school only is it's quite yeah. So we are going through a major flip and the flip that we are pursuing is uh, from shifting from being a graduate school of design that happens to be called an institute to becoming a 21st century kind of institute, leading institute of design practice that also have a graduate school. So we are adding and building out what we call an action lab, which is focused much more on collaboration and consortium syndicated work with different nonprofits, for-profits on major impacts on initiatives. And second, we are creating a training academy. Uh, so taking our work we have done in continuing it, but really taking it both to trying to instill the discipline of continuing it for designers or people who drive change. We're the only professional practice who doesn't have a practice or a habit of continuing it. And we need to change that more about it. Right. And then the second one is much more the community-driven work, which is uh, bringing design to the community to what we call community-based studios. And we, we brought on a faculty member in, uh, who's a former community organizer uh, in, in community design. So, so that's kind of what, what, what my change was and what we are trying to do now at, at ID is to continue to our purpose and Moholy's challenge of technological progress with social responsibility through doing the frontier and dealing with the complexity, but also trying to really have provide more access and, and more impact. When I think about designers um, talking about impact, and when I think about um, what a lot of what we've been talking about here about um, kind of design in partnership with 
with other people. I think that there, and, and this idea that design alone can do it, and that kind of weird myth that feels very unique to designers, is that when often when designers talk about impact, and this is a blanket statement and I'm overgeneralizing, but there is a certain uh, kind of ego built into that, that design is the solution to every single problem that, that ails the world. Uh, and what I'm hearing you say, which I agree with, is that design can help, but it is not design alone. It is design in collaboration. It is design in community. It is design in conjunction with everything else. And so what I'm interested in, or what I kind of am curious about is if you are making that flip in the school, is it does it come back to purpose i guess because if design is always in collaboration with something else what is it about design that that is still the important part is it that kind of owning the the purpose how 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 so to certain extent you're asking on how do you impact is always evidence-based and i think you're asking on a personal level how do i actually feel that i'm contributing and how do, if i don't measure it by design awards or yeah yeah i mean and not just that doesn't even just have to be you personally it could just be the institute of design you know how does the institute of design kind of think about yeah. that so i think that uh, it's i think much more in terms of contribution if you shift away from this authorship to uh, uh contribution is it, it, kind of reframing it but i think that the bigger shift as well and and i it's just starting to, I'm actually going to organize a symposium on that, um, it's doing a grant in that, is, is, and it's not a new idea, but, but I think actually art, the art field has first embraced that. What if we reframe design as a social practice and saying actually it's not a social mm. practice uh, and have rediscover it and reclaim it? Uh, I think that's that's yeah. what I think we are doing. We just haven't now done the theoretical underpinning of it to kind of codify uh, the practice, but I think the whole design and social innovation is a social practice. And I think if you approach it as a social practice, you buy, I think that changes again much more to this purpose of um, contributing, of being an integrator and a facilitator, and and and, and much more uh, kind of a social, a social practice and a social service. So I think that's that's the that's the cultural change. And, and I think uh, that that shift, and, and one of the reasons um, that, were, that shift did not just help for the non-profit and government sector, it also helped for the private sector. And, and that, I, I just have to, you asked me about my personal path. I, when I made, when I left McDonald's, which by the way was the highlight of my career from an intellectual challenge point of view, and so, you know, uh, I did it not only because of the way human and generic and Thing of wanting to create more social, more social contributions, I also did it because I felt that it is the right approach also for the for-profit for sector because of the complexity. It had just you hear it in stakeholder capitalism, whatever you want to call it, and there's a general uh, and this, this black rock on 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 this and, and reports on the on the uh, black on the um, purpose-driven organizations and, and the ESG movement on environmental, social, and governance. I think where businesses can learn from that is from the social sector. So one of the reasons I went into that because I felt in the in the history, nonprofits always thought they could learn from for-profit businesses and government as well. And I think we are flipping a hundred percent. I think profit can now learn 
from the social practices of, of public and not particularly nonprofit. To to begin to to wrap up the conversation, I'm I'm curious about kind of what you think is next for design education and kind of what happens in a design education program, thinking about switching design or reframing design as a social practice. What does that mean for the curriculum, for what students would, would learn, for what uh, what we might define as the skills of the designer? How uh, What is kind of the next thing that needs to be added into design curriculums? So I, I, we, we, I don't know the full answer yet, but we are exploring the question and we're kind of doing two, two things. Uh, which probably is not 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 comprehensive enough. Uh, so one is uh, we are moving back into much more practice things, and it's kind of it's in mm. a situation of the extreme so too, because I need to give credit to uh, the Cincinnati uh, College of Design because they have always had a co-op based program that very much in the undergraduate level and very much from kind of the housing. But it's and then it's absolutely critical there. But we never thought that when we moved into more of the world and the why that that would make sense. They've been now realizing that it is desperately needed because you can only practice design practicing with other practitioners uh, and other disciplines, and therefore you need to do going to practice. So we have introduced externships and have a huge success with it, and probably split half for nonprofits, half for profits, uh, and our students in the last two semesters. Uh, we have embraced, uh, particularly with COVID, uh, fellowships. So, so those are internships at, at nonprofits, but we are really, really driving that. Mm. And we have also introduced, uh, borrowing from, from clinical psychology, uh, we have introduced the, the idea of practicum, practical training. So students actually get mm. paid. So it's like a psychologist who has to do certain therapy sessions under supervision. These are projects that people do uh, it's, it's again Cincinnati or OCAT has also a consulting arm uh, where basically do mm-hmm. a consulting work. So I think that's that's number one from an education point of view. It needs to be practice based, not a bit particularly because it needs to happen with other is other disciplines. The second thing is we moved back after 20 years when we had our own campus downtown and were in the design district. Uh, we moved back uh, to the main campus. Uh, to the south side of Chicago uh, for two reasons. One, from an education point of view, the reason was that we needed, it was insane. We were part of a technological university and we made no use of it. So, uh, so yeah. the technology is, again, going back to Moholy, you realize that, that technological progress is what design is all about and ensuring the social responsibility of it. Uh, so we felt that we needed much more courses uh, that were interdisciplinary and we knew that even though there was a campus bus between the two campuses, that students wouldn't do it, particularly if you wanted to invite other students. So, so that was one of the, the key reasons we moved back. And um, one of um, the, the, it's not that easy to create uh, uh, interdisciplinary courses uh, at, the, at the high level. Uh, we have 20% yeah. rates at this stage for students coming in from other disciplines in our courses. And the reason why is obviously it's a lot of uh, uh, we are not a licensed profession, so we have a lot of freedom in our curriculum. Many other disciplines do not have that. So, uh, uh, so that, but I think that's a, another key part, more opportunities to work together. And that's one of the reasons we are creating the Action Lab and have done more and more uh, Action Lab work, where in projects, it's much easier for us as research associates or action associates 
uh, to actually which are paid positions uh, to get students from all the other uh, disciplines to come in to work together on this. My last question, this is the question that I used to end all of these um, these conversations. I'm just, uh, I'd love to know what you're reading right now. So I'm, I'm reading The Upswing, so that's the Robert Putnam, which is the same Falling Alone, uh, How America Came Together, essentially going on how we can do it again. And that's kind of the positive looking one. And then I'm also reading, or I haven't started yet, but I brought it to read in parallel, is The Virtue of Nationalism by Yoram Boni, mm. who is an argument uh, for nationalism, which I don't buy into, uh, but I found that given that it's happening around the world, I felt I needed to better understand what, what the virtue of nationalism is. I'm sure it has some virtues. Uh, so those are kind of, because I really think uh, the election shorted again, it, it, it's so 50-50 and it's an issue around the world. And... I, I, I don't want to say that design can contribute <laughs> yeah. a little bit, and I need to understand that, that, that issue of that scouting because it, it's a, it's what's hindering basically uh, human progress or human development. Dennis, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I am a big fan of of what you're doing and how you are thinking about these things. I thought this conversation was uh, was so fascinating. Thanks for taking the time and and talking to me for this. It's been a pleasure, and thank you. This episode was recorded on November 6, 2020. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.